0: Dave. Now look, you're a Londoner, aren't you? Yes. London Dave, that's what we call you. Yeah. What happens to your uh, your coffee grounds, Dave, in that there London? I thought they went to the great refuse bin in the sky, Ol. Oh. Well, some maybe, but many are collected by our friends at Up Circle who cycle round London daily, collecting leftover grounds from coffee shops and transforming them into skincare products. Coffee oil, Dave, is extracted from the leftover grounds And used in their face serum for its brightening properties. Now, it's a 5 and one product, this bad boy. And for under £15, you get something which hydrates your face. Dave? I've got a lot of face. Softens ends of your hair. Not relevant. Not your hair. Uh, Supports nail growth. Uh, it's good you can put it in your beard. Well, not relevant for you. Not my beard. Uh, and it can be
1: mixed with your foundation. So there you go, Dave. Well, there's nothing I like more than mixing things in with my foundation. And because this is UpCircle Beauty, it can be refilled as part of their return refill reuse scheme when you're done with it. So if this sounds good, you can get yours for 15% off at UpCircleBeauty.com just by using the special code just for you, dear Babble listener, Babble Circle.
0: Hello, hello, welcome to Sustainable 268.
1: Welcome yourself, all to Sustainable, my vigorously ambivalent friend. How That's the me. devil are you? I am very
0: well, thank you. How are
1: you, my chump? Yes, I'm very well, thank you very much. Now we are Sustainable, we are your friendly little weekly environment podcast. In we all? Yes, all about people and the planet. And why? Despite everything being very confusing. You can still have a little bit of a chuckle and laugh about it every now and then. Yes? Can and must... I always say. Can and yes. must. And not necessarily worry about it all being very confusing. And that's what we're going to be talking about today with someone. What we have wanted to get on The Babel for a very, very long time. Massive thanks to friend of The Babble, James Murray, for hooking us up with our guest, who is David Roberts. Who is, maybe better known to you as previously Dr. Vox and now Dr. Volts, American-based commentator on all things to do with climate change, and a clean economy, and politics, and climate philosophy, and stuff, writes amazingly, thinks expansively, and has got no time for your shit. <laughs> My shit,
0: specifically, or the well, listener's d- shit?
1: Uh, there's a fine line.
0: Very fine line. Absolutely. And look, this is a wonderful, wide-ranging, expansive chat, and we didn't really want to edit any of it out. Because it's great. So this is a slightly longer episode than usual, but I think you'll probably stick around with it because it's just brilliant. So we don't apologise for it. It's sit back, nestle into David's dulcet tones, and they are quite dulcet tones. I quite like how he sounds as well as what he says. Uh, And, yeah, just just wallow in the good sense
1: of this man and his opinions. We talked about... What the hell's going on in the States right now? Them elections, what they had, what's going on there then? We talked about climate change as an idea. David has a degree in philosophy, that's his background, so he's done a lot of thinking about climate as an idea and what it is. And we talked about how to find optimism and keep your shit together when it may sometimes seem like you can't.
0: Now, just the usual disclaimers. Uh, Dave and I work for environment charities, don't we, Dave? Yes, And so, therefore, these are very much our own views. So, if you've got anything, you know, sort of niggling away, thinking, I don't like that, I don't like the sound of that, well, take it up with us. Don't take it out with the people who
1: pay us, okay? But remember, and David will come to this, if you've heard something controversial, at least you've heard an idea. Exactly. And that's better than not hearing anything of substance at all. Right? Right. Right. So, let's get on with our chat with David. And I started by asking him before he'd even had time to sip his cup of tea what the f*** <laughs> has just happened in America then
0: oh, god roll out the bleep machine
2: <laughs> wow. yeah, you had to start there. Um, uh, what's going on in the States is that um, the entire political media elite establishment turned out to be wrong. And there is not a red wave happening <laughs> in our midterms. Uh, and instead, in almost every case, um, Democrats are performing better than expected. So it's still unclear um, who's going to control the uh, the House of Representatives and who's going to control the Senate. Everything's still up in the air. There are several extremely tight races that haven't been called now, but long story short, um, Democrats are surprisingly doing better than people thought they would.
0: So does that mean that you are no longer freaking out about politics? Because you have, you, and we'll, oh, we'll come on to this, no. but you've said elsewhere that you're <laughs> oh, relatively no, no, zen no. about climate catastrophe, which may be a true oh, no, characterization no, no, of it, uh, but that you're freaking out about politics. So you're no longer freaking out about politics. Is everything fine? No, uh, uh,
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. These are all shades. These are all degrees of apocalypse we're talking about here. These are... <laughs> fine fine shades of apocalypse uh we're <laughs> distinguishing among i mean no i y- you know i will have to i think maybe revise my priors a little bit a- a- after the results of this election but basically the, the 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 set of large structural forces and trends that i have been feeling dread about are all still very much in place i mean this feels like Democrats sort of you know, scrambling in a rearguard action, but we're in a situation now where we got two parties and if one of them takes over the apparatus of government, it's entirely possible that we'll never have a fair, free election again, and that's just not a stable, long-term situation. You cannot have a two-party system where if one of the parties wins, the whole system goes down. That's not a stable situation, and that's basically the situation we're in. So... You know, uh, yeah, I'm still I still think the next decade of U.S. politics are going to be super, super ugly. And
0: what do you think about Biden bringing up climate change in the
2: middle of his history?
1: <laughs> well, a lot of people had a reaction to it. I mean, you know, for me, uh, my view is, is that, um, you know, if you look at Florida's history uh, from 1919 to 1960, we had 10.000 category 4 or plus storms hit the state. We have had five since then. This is just something we've got to deal with regardless of those political debates. Cuz at some point the Republicans are going to win, right? And if if, I if, <laughs> yeah, I, if I if I if I like if I interpret you correctly, what happened in the midterms was they didn't get the Democrats didn't get an absolute ass kicking.
2: And that that is yeah. that is
1: seen as being a win.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean the thing is in the, in US politics when you have a president from a party elected The first midterm election after that is almost always what they call a thermostatic reaction against the president's party. So, you know, like in Obama's first midterm election after he was elected, Democrats lost 63 seats. (laughs) It was one of the most sort of epic shellackings ever. So that's that's true. That's been true in almost every first midterm after an election. In American history, with only one or two exceptions, like George Bush writing the Iraq War uh, kind of effect defied it, but that it almost always happens. So so it was just predictable just along those lines that, that Democrats were going to get their asses kicked. So, you know, they could, sort of held their own, held losses to a minimum. It's really absolutely good news.
0: And what are progressives thinking about all of this in, in the States? Because- from from over here, it felt a little bit last time, and we spoke to some actual Americans uh, in the
1: run up to the last election. <laughs> we'll speak it to an actual American? Now.
0: Um, nice. Yes, uh, as in some, some additional actual oh, Americans. Oh, 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 right, okay, the other ones. Um, but yeah, as part of our extensive <laughs> research and in journalistic integrity, we spoke to some actual Americans in the run up to the last election, and and the progressive view was like, hold your nose, kind of vote for Biden because the alternative is much worse. But my God, we're not exactly inspired by him, and there's a lot of work to do. Is that is that kind of where things are at now, particularly um, from, a, from a climaty point of view, or, or is, it, is that wrong?
2: That was absolutely the posture of, of, of progressives leading into the election. Like Biden was probably, of all the Democrats competing in that primary, Biden was probably at the bottom of the list of, of progressives just because he's got a long, long history as a sort of, you know, someone who just tacks to the center of wherever the party is. However, I will say, I mean, given that the sort of standard background condition for progressives is to be (laughs) mad and disappointed all the time. That's just. just We're never happier than when we're really uh, cross. I, I know. Just take that as a baseline condition. I will say that the performance from my perspective, and I consider myself a progressive, from my perspective, the performance of Biden and the Democratic Congress, given. The circumstances, given what a just whisper, whisper thin majority they had in the Senate, given the fact that, uh, you know, um, inflation and, and COVID dragging on, I mean, given the inclement circumstances, Biden and the Democrats have vastly outperformed my expectations. Like I, Look back on the last two years and am just flat amazed at what they were able to get done. So I mean, I, I mean, you know, if you ask a, if you get a real progressive activist on here, I'm sure they'll say everything's terrible and and everyone's terrible, and that's you know true on some level. But relative to expectations, uh, I w- was shocked. I've been shocked at how <clears throat> good things are and. Never more so than when the big climate bill passed. Like, that was absolutely yeah. a, a miracle, I'll say. I
1: said, a boy without a winkle? <laughs> God be praised, it's a miracle, a boy without a winkle. That's pretty amazing. We We did cover that with a sort of, you know, what are they doing over their face on a couple of whatever, whatever it was a few, a few months ago. But is, is it as impressive as it sounds then? Because it sounds pretty good. In fact, why not just remind people what the essence of it is in case case they don't
2: know? Sure, sure. It's impressive on two, on two grounds. One is it's impressive that it happened at all because, uh, you know, I don't know how closely you guys followed this, but we got this, we had a 50-50 Senate, which basically means to get literally anything done you had to get because Republicans, right. you know, years ago, more or less, decided they will offer no help, period, on anything, period. That's it. So you have to get all fifty Democrats online for anything you want to do. And so, you know, the the Senate Democrats are are uh, uh, have been a source of of. of uh, indigestion for me, for <laughs> for many, many years. And, and, you know, we had this guy, Joe Manchin from a red state, West Virginia, who, who, you know, was hacking away at the, at the big agenda. Like at the beginning of the term, there's this big build back better agenda, which is just like a Christmas tree, just like everything progressives wanted would have been amazing. I mean, it was amazing that it, that it came out at all. But of course, Joe Manchin hacked away at it and hacked away at it and hacked away at it. And it looked very much like, nothing was going to pass at all. Like toward the end, you know, toward the end of this two year period, that very much looked like the whole thing was going to go down in flames. So a mansion changed his mind. No one knows why (laughs) to this day. (laughs) Changed his mind or had (laughs) his
0: mind changed. I'd love to know (laughs) the the inside story of that one.
2: Who uh, my, 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 my assessment of mansion is that he is like many older white men. uh, Egotistical, easy to manipulate through flattery, and more or less adopts the views of whatever um, sort of suit-wearing white guy spoke to him last. (laughs) So I think it was honestly just a matter of timing. Like we got the right white guy in a suit talking (laughs) to Mansion at exactly the right moment for him to change. Like he, I'm sure he would have changed his mind again if given you know another couple of weeks, but like time had run out. So. It's a miracle it passed at all, but, this, but the second miracle is in that original Build Back Better package, the big grandiose package, was a, an incredibly strong and and really well thought out and detailed climate package that was put together not by sort of politicians, but by the staffers on the committees, you know, like the nerds, the nerds down in the basement of the Capitol building who really know what they're doing, and somehow that climate Part of the Build Back Better survived the entire process and came out the other end almost intact, more or less intact. So, all of which is just to say it is both a miracle that it happened at all and a miracle that it is genuinely good. It's a genuinely good and transformative bill. Like, if you look at the modeling, if that bill hadn't passed, the U.S. would have effectively uh reduced emissions you know on a on a on a a barely at all let's just say barely at all and with this bill in place the us actually has a fighting chance of hitting its paris target so it really was the difference between almost nothing and something close to success so you know i've been i'm not a um, uh, 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 sort of happy, celebratory person by nature, but I've been <laughs> I've been out begging my fellow progressives for weeks. Like, please, just be happy for a moment. A good thing happened.
0: Now, talking of uh, Paris and all of that. There's another thing going on at the moment, and you can never accuse us of being anything other than topical. Uh, the the cop is going on in Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt. Um, any point to that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bloody hell! Uh, I I I am, um, and I and I know this is is. Controversial in 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 green circles, but I am personally a big fan of the Paris Agreement and a big fan of the Paris. (laughs) When you said it was controversial, I thought you were going to say you hate the bloody thing. (laughs) No, I I I I defend it. I think it's a good thing, and 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 here's one of the reasons it's good. You could say every pre-Paris cop was pointless yes (laughs) there was no point because it was a perpetual pursuit of a more or less impossible goal which is a binding treaty unanimously signed by literally all the world's countries like that was never ever ever going to happen and the amount of time and energy wasted pursuing it is dazzling to contemplate however you put paris in place and you just have kind of like Lost your utopian fantasies, but you've put a very sort of pedestrian, simple framework in place so people can actually just get around you know get started doing the work so which is all to say, like in this current cop, there's probably nothing of particular note like there's no particular reason for you and i to to follow the day to day ins and outs what they're doing is just sort of the block and tackle work of implementing. Paris. So it's all it's it's become less sexy, but but more practically useful. That like they're they're just hashing out the details now, and you know, and and the big the big fight this year is over loss and damage. Again, the big fight this year, and I think the big fight for many years to come is just going to be wealthy countries keep saying they're going to pay help help poor countries pay to To adapt and to uh, decarbonize, and they keep not doing it, (laughs) and that's going to be, you know, I think that's going to be the the center of fights for years to come. But in general, I think the process has become much more productive than it used to be. So, so do you think that like it's best even the best sort
1: of. Source of optimism is countries just kind of getting on with it. That maybe actually a lot of these tricky international things will never be sorted. And maybe we should just kind of crack on at home, first and foremost. Or? Well,
2: I mean, it's I they have to be, <laughs> I mean, they need to be sorted at some point. A lot of these questions you can't get around, but but they're not holding up the whole process mm. anymore, right? Like there's lots of other stuff going on. And that's what Paris is, is instead of like a threat, a binding you know, something that countries view as sort of tying them down. It's just like a a friendly competition, you know, like what, what can you do? What do you think you can do? And that just allows people to start doing stuff. And my theory of the case has always been anytime you do something, and that's whether you're a country, a business, an individual, name it, you find out that doing things is easier and cheaper than you thought they would be, right? That always the fear in advance is greater than what is warranted. So anything that just loosens action a little bit and gets people doing stuff, I think, kicks off a positive Cycles. So you do some stuff. You're like, oh, that wasn't so hard. It was. It didn't cost us that much. It's actually, oh, look, it's actually like saving us money. It's actually easier than we thought. And that produces more action. So I've always, you know, that's been always my criticism of the cops leading up to Paris is just like, we can't do nothing until everything. <laughs> you know, we can't wait for everything to be done before anything happens. Like, and so th- that's what Paris has done. It's like, there's still... Big roadblocks, still thorny questions. They're going to be very difficult to hash out, but they're not blocking the whole process. People are working in the meantime doing other stuff.
0: I feel like every cop before Paris is how I approach my to-do list at work, which is (laughs) I can't possibly do any of these things until I know precisely how it's all going to play out and have got exactly got to keep
2: the entire huge thing in mind at all times and, <laughs> and thus be par- and thus be paralyzed exactly. uh, uh, ideally, in, somebody, in somebody else
1: ideally will do all of that thinking so
2: i don't have to do it i mean yeah. that is the dream <laughs> yeah. is
1: that yeah
2: <laughs>
0: someone steams in you know a kind of un figure
2: you read any of these life hacker sites or whatever and they all say the same thing which is if you have a big thing to do break it down into small parts and do one small part at a time and just keep doing small parts, right? And that's like, you're right. Like the pre-Paris cops were, and I'm very much the same way. I'm like, oh, here's this giant task. Like, ah, I'll go on Twitter for a bit. I can't think (laughs) about it, you know? But now it's like, there are little bits and pieces you can do. So like people are doing little bits and pieces.
1: Kids, you tried your best
2: and you failed miserably. The lesson is, Never try.
0: So you sound uh, to us and indeed in your in your writing like a rather pragmatic type. Um, and I'm gonna therefore chuck some things at you which I think you might be tempted to give sensible, considered it depends answers to. But we're in the climate movement and we're not interested in that. We want we want (laughs) want some table pounding? Exactly. We want table pounding. We want resolute positions, categorical (laughs) binary yes or no. Uh uh, and firm agreement uh, or disagreement with each of these statements. So, statement number one You're trying
2: to figure out who, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. That's exactly. To, exactly.
0: Right. Um, and after eight <laughs> years, we're increasingly of the opinion that we might be the bad guys. <laughs> but we are we but the baddies? Oh, exactly. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Right. Statement number one uh, We should abandon nuclear power.
2: Uh, no. Wait. Is that should I expand on my categorical, categorical answer? Uh, um, you don't have to. I tell you what. To. Why don't we chuck a couple at you
1: that are yeah. sort of in this ballpark? Sure. And then You can maybe uh, categorically. Sure. No. Adva- slap advanced. Us the face. Uh,
2: um, I, I, I think we should keep nuclear plants open that are running safely currently until we're a lot farther along uh, uh, decarbonizing the grid. And I think it's worth researching. Um, advanced nuclear. I think both those are worth doing. The current generation of nuclear plants, I think, is a money pit <laughs> and not worth um, you know throwing more money at. But nuclear in general, I think uh, there's no reason we shouldn't um, research it and pursue it. It's one tool in the toolbox. Okay. And then the flip
1: side of that, we should be 100% renewable. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you, you know... Sitting on a grid that is still, you know, like 85 to 90% fossil fuels and arguing about the last 5% of that fossil fuels is there's something truly ludicrous uh, about it. None of us have enough information to know what a fully decarbonized grid is going to look like. So the only intellectually credible answer is I don't know what it's going to look like. So choosing, choosing <laughs> oh, your enough. final mix—not good enough, not good is, enough. enough. Your is, is nothing. It's nothing but an identity, right? It's nothing but sort of like virtue or, or, or whatever signaling. It's nothing but like I'm this kind of person. Oh, I'm this kind of person. Like no one knows. So I will say this. If you want something uh, controversial and categorical, okay. I will say, I will say, in the end, I think we're going to use vastly less. Uh, carbon capture vastly less nuclear, vastly less uh, natural gas, vastly less biomass than current models predict. I think the combination of renewable energy um, a- a- along with you know geothermal and other and other kinds of renewable energy with storage and demand management is going to go much farther than current models predict.
1: How about that? All right.
2: Okay. <laughs> okay. That's a He's good.
1: He's good on this one. He's yeah, <laughs> This isn't his first rodeo. I, th- I think it? we need to turn up the voltage on this, geezer. Go on, try the other. All right. Okay. okay. Here we go. Um, <laughs> there is only
0: one thing we need to do to sort out all of this, and that is a carbon tax. That will sort everything.
2: Correct. <laughs> I will say, if. If there were some godlike authority that that, <laughs> that could that could impose its will on the globe, on the entire globe, and all the countries in it, then yes, sort of, almost by definition, a carbon tax w- would work. Like it's, like all the models, of the theoretical, the theoretical attraction of a carbon tax is is undeniable. Like absolutely, if you could put an actual price on all tons of carbon equally and enforce it, then yes, it would work. But you can't, so oh. who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but that's it, isn't it? Like People, people just
1: assume, hey, oh, we solved it. We've written a page. What's this? The one-page the one economic plan to save the planet. All yes. we need to do is introduce a carbon tax at a rate that no one's ever going to do. They are fixed, but here. But the, <laughs>
2: like, the thing I always, I always tell people about a carbon tax is it is, it is almost the inverse of a politically attractive option. It it penalizes literally everyone in a very visible way. Literally everyone's prices for energy related um, uh, stuff is going to go up, whereas the benefits are almost all diffuse and sort of emergent. And you sort of need an economic analysis paper to even realize what they are and see them. So I was, I'm like, I'm like, I, I mean, I've been saying this for <laughs> decades because because you know the carbon tax uh, fanaticism was at it was at its peak in the sort of 2000s and, 20, and 2010s, and I kept saying over and over again like. This is the opposite of good politics. You are trying to poke a stick in everyone's eye. You are going to make an enemy of everyone, and you are going to have no friends <laughs> other than the economists who are writing these one-page solutions. Who oh, you, you, you do not want?
1: You do as your friends. Or if, you, if what, they are your friends, then uh, yeah. What
2: divisions know. do they command? Like you know, you know, like they have the, they don't have any f- power, and no one cares what they say. So. So this was, and and, you know, I think I will say on a positive note, I think finally the U S sort of the U S climate movement has internalized this and realized this like carbon pricing can be a limited tool in certain limited cases. It can work, but as a sort of end all be all, it's just a disastrous flag to fly. It's disastrous. It's the worst you could do for politics. And it just speaks to the fact that climate concern came into culture through science basically like science and economics and and if you want to talk to a group of people who are politically daft just gather a room full of economists and scientists you know people who have the least understanding of political economy uh, in the world it's economists and scientists so, I think finally that's ending and a more pragmatic strategy is taking over. But, but, but no, like carbon pricing, where and when y- you can do it, it's fine. But don't, uh, I think it's a disastrous centerpiece of your policy program.
1: Does every tax rise represent a blow against freedom? Well, depends how big the tax rise is. <laughs> All right, all right. I've got one for you. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll get off this skewer David Roberts category in a minute. But it's very good. It's very good. Right, so here's mm, one for yeah. you. When all is said and done, when the chips are down, climate change isn't really a political issue.
2: <laughs> Did you bring your guitar, oh. Dave? <laughs> <clears throat> um the, the 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 way that translates in the US is typically it's not a partisan issue right which means it's not something one party or the other it's not something that any one party should own because it affects us all this is the ultimate expression of that lack of political acumen <laughs> that I was referring to <laughs> earlier. uh, And, and, you know, once again, in like the 2010s, I went out pounding the table about this constantly. And one of the things I would frequently say is like, well, weird. You look and like everyone who supports doing something about climate change or has done anything about climate change is in one party. And everyone who's fighting it and trying not to do anything about it and telling lies about it is in the other party. So whatever you might think normatively, whatever you might think climate change should be, descriptively, it's a partisan issue <laughs> because one party supports and the other doesn't. That's the definition of a partisan issue. So like, this is, I mean, it's not just the scientists and economists, all of like American elites are, are, are full of people who want to believe they are not Partisan, right? They are they see the bigger picture. They're not one of these sort of grubby activists down there who've chosen a side and and ignores all the other side's argument. They see they see the bigger picture. All these people are, although they do not realize it, on the left, right? If you probe a little bit, you'd be like, Do you believe in basic human rights? Do you believe like a truth and accuracy? Do you, you know, etc. Like if you probe their values, hmm. you find over and over again i was like oh well one side believes that and the other doesn't so guess what you are on a side <laughs> you can deny it until you are in the grave but in actual fact you are on one side because there's a whole movement of people who don't share those values and are against you so anyway like it, people are so keen to avoid partisanship that they that they end up saying um dumb shit like this, but I, I have gotten more and more blunt about it over the years. It's just a fact. If you live in the U.S. and you want something done about climate change, the number one thing you can do is not buying a f- recyclable tote bag or or like an EV. The number one thing you can do is ensure that as many Democrats as possible are elected. That is factually, analytically, what leads to climate progress, whatever you think ought to be the case. That is the actual... Facts of the case,
1: which is interesting, because I don't think that is the case over here. And why? What is yeah. your quick take on why that is a? You know, we, we obviously have a bit of that in our politics, mm. but you know, yeah. it's definitely not that poisonous, right? Like Boris Johnson, you know, our yeah, yeah. ex ex asshole yeah. Prime Minister of the of the well, still an ex Prime Minister of, of the United. But he was like very big up on the climate stuff. So what? Like in in a nutshell, and I know people write extremely long books about this. What's going yeah, on there? Yes. Why is
2: it so particularly well, poisonous? In this I case? would say two short things. One is that's the difference between a parliamentary system and a two-party system, right? So so parliamentary systems allow your nutbags to be sorted into a, a fringe party and not take over. A major party, right? You can have fringe well, far right, mostly, mostly. <laughs> yeah. a few, mostly. A few months ago, right. I, would have I to, with you. I used <laughs> to be, <believe Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. Mo- mostly. But I mean, I feel like our politics are infecting yours in a lot of ways. So, but, but it's part of the party. Is a two party system, and part of it is just U.S. culture versus European culture. U.S. just has this long history of racism, inflected hostility toward. Liberal values and I think I mean to return to to, to to if you want something controversial on <laughs> that previous question, I think not only is <clears throat> climate change a partisan issue in descriptive fact, I think it is um basically a liberal issue period only it can only be understood and solved through the application of liberal values. It requires, for instance, um, cooperation among countries. Hey, look, the right is full of nationalists who hate that shit. It requires um, zero sum cooperation. Oh, look, the right is full of uh, uh, lunatics who hate that stuff. <laughs> like it, and it requires sac- some sacrifice in the present for people in the future. It requires some sacrifice on the part of rich, wealthy people on behalf of poor people, all of those things are anathema to true reactionaries, right? So I think I think, um, like many global problems today, it solicits liberal, basically, uh, you know, small l liberal values to solve it. I just think reactionaries are ill suited to the modern world. Period.
0: so how do you how do you win then how do you because because you know a lot of a lot of people certainly in the uk say can't we all just get along can't we find a way to make climate sounds like uh it's what to use your word
1: reactionaries like red wine it, is going to get more expensive they are they like that don't they yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, uh, yeah. Or, yeah. you know what we need to
0: appeal to their values uh such that they think that climate policies are in their interests. So yeah, how do we you, get a lot of that in how the US do you think too that works.
2: I mean, I think that can sort of in kind of narrow individual cases work sometimes and I think again it's easier to pull that off in a parliamentary system than it is in a very binary system like everything about us politics is about sorting all of a certain kind of person has been sorted to one side and all of a certain kind of person has been sorted to the other side i think in a much more extreme and clean way than in other countries so you know when you ask um what you're asking When you talk about, you know, framing climate change in terms that will appeal to the right, you know, national security or, you know, economic opportunity, whatever jobs, you know, people have been been lecturing the climate movement in the U.S. to talk in those terms for decades. And, of course, they constantly do. And when they do, no one notices or gives a shit. They just return (laughs) to the lectures, you know, because it doesn't – because what you're asking of today's right – I mean, today's right, they – they're so sorted that the whole thing has become an identity. All these are all parts of identity. Everything from like pickup trucks, you know, to guns, to hostility, to elite uh, uh, institutions, to hostility to intellectuals. All of it is part of a seamless identity now. So when you're trying, you know, uh, in the U.S. context. You're trying to go into that seamless identity and pluck one issue out and ask these people to say, you know, your identity is all of this. But on this one thing, (laughs) we want you to think clean, freshly and differently. You know, just agree with the left on this one thing. That's just not how it works in U.S. politics, right? Like the whole identity is a seamless garment of Libs are evil. They're taking over the world. They're running pedophile rings. Like the idea, you know, the idea that you could agree with them on one of their signature issues is just increasingly ludicrous right like it's all it's all one it's all one thing now being on the right and you can't really pluck individual issues out and try to free them from that dynamic it's just it's failed over and over and over and over again they've just been tried and failed
1: it's gonna be much easier when china's in charge isn't it (laughs) day's face is one of
0: extreme pain is this (laughs) can you just think i (laughs) know
1: Right, hello, Dave here. And I'm whispering so that Old doesn't hear me what I've done is snuck into this episode of Babel just to give a little plug to my other podcast, Your Brain on Climate. It's all about human brains and how they work and don't work and how they think about the world and how what they think about the world is part of the climate crisis and how understanding the climate crisis means understanding human brains and how they work. And we come at things sideways. So we look at things you might think have nothing to do with climate change at all. But when you unpick it all, Everything does. It's called Your Brain on Climate. It's available the same place you found The Babel. I hope you like it. Please have a listen. Don't tell on I'm here. Oh, he's coming. Okay, bye.
2: Your brain on climate.
1: So let's, let's change tack a bit here then. So what is, you've, you've written and thought about climate change. I guess you've been doing this about as long as me and I'll have, like best part of 20 years, right? Something like that? Kind of banging on?
2: Mm. Yeah, ish. basically. Yeah.
1: And I don't know about you, I suspect your brain is rather more ordered than ours. But to me, <laughs> I, I'm, I still don't really know what climate change is. Is in my head. Like I kind of have different stories of it. I was thinking the other day, like, what is this what's the metaphor that I have for climate change? And I still don't know if I can really work that out. What is it in your head? Like when you think about this big abstract thing, like what is the story of it in your head? Do you know that?
2: Well, uh that's a juicy, juicy question. And I, you know, I was in grad school for philosophy, uh philosophy for Many years <laughs> before I bailed out ABD and uh, and ended up randomly in journalism. So uh, you know, which is just to say that I always have been attracted to big questions, big theoretical questions, big systems, systems thinking. I guess was always appealed to me. So when I sort of stumbled into green journalism, looking around, I was like, uh, "What interests me here?" And climate change is. The very it's 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 an interesting public policy problem in that um, we don't really know how to think about it. Like We don't really know what it is like. It's 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 a it's difficult to think about, which is, you know, for someone who was sort of trained to do systems thinking and break things down into their pieces and et cetera, et cetera, just just a feast so it's 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 been you know it's been fun to think about it and i think we're sort of misled when we try to think about it as an it as a phenomenon i think um when you think about it climate change is not a thing it's not a force it's not acting it is just a description of a result right like climate Mm. is changing is the result of um human Behavior, So it's not doing anything, <laughs> right? It's not a causal – this has confused the climate dialogue for years and years as we try to talk about it as though it is a thing, a force that does things, that causes things. So like a given storm, did climate change cause that? No. Climate change is a description of the fact that the climate has changed in such a way as to produce more hurricanes, right? What caused it is the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere trapping heat. Like if you want to see a causal agent, that's the causal agent. So I would just say it is, um, it is one way that we have discovered that uh, our way of living is zero sum we are burning through finite resources in such a way that it's going to come back and and hurt us. And it's part of the larger sort of human evolutionary effort to transition into a non-zero-sum way of living on this earth, a way that does not burn through finite resources and does not um, just tuck away problems. <laughs> you know, like that's what humans have been doing since they... You know, since they evolved from apes in the first place, is is like putting their trash somewhere, right? And it's just and so climate change is just part of the discovery that like, oh, humanity is big enough now, and numerous enough now, and powerful enough now that there is no longer any way to put the trash. (laughs) You got to stop producing the trash.
1: The oceans are swimming in it. Rivers are choked with it. Coastlines are collecting it. Landfills are clogged with it. Our trash bags are filled with it. And it's even that, floating in the
2: air. to me, is heat. is the story. And I've always, and I will always, I'll make a confession here that might drive some people crazy. I've always found climate change itself somewhat boring <laughs> <laughs> to, to write about. You know, like I like you come in. You know, you would come in in the 2000s and be like, what am I going to write about today? And I was like, well, it, 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 the 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 atmosphere is 0.0001% warmer. I feel like the seas are 0.0001% higher. There's just not a lot of like news. There's not a lot of interest. There's not a lot to say about it. You know, like the stories you can write about climate change in and of itself have been written now. And they're just being written over and over and over and over and over and over and over 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 again, which is just pretty boring to me. To me, the interesting story, the juicy story, the reason I'm so glad I chose this topic and the reason I feel like despite the world falling apart, like I'm a little bit like a pig in shit these days, is the story of transforming Culture and the economy in a way that no longer produces shit that you have to (laughs) trash that you have to store somewhere, right? That's fascinating. That's a fascinating multi, you know, like there's just endless, endless interest there. And unlike in climate change proper, there's stuff happening every day like fascinating shit is happening there's stuff to tell there's stories to tell every day and to me if you want to get people interested in this and engaged in this and acting on this the whole like climate change terror angle i just don't think is going to get you very very far but the like There's a giant threat in the background. And as a result, you and your, your generation is rising up to meet this threat with ingenuity and, 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 you know, thoughtfulness. And we're changing technology and we're changing politics and like we're fighting and it's like a huge fight and we're way behind, but we're starting to win. We're having victories. Like you are part of a generational fight that is, that is ultimately going to, you know, that could win, that is, that is experiencing victories. That to me is a compelling story that to me gets people excited and involved and engaged with you. And that to me, if you ask me like what I cover as a journalist, that's what I cover is the story of uh, clever people of goodwill working to solve bits and pieces of this problem and it turns out there are a million of them out there and nothing i in my experience nothing like if you want to cure climate depression and paralysis and angst uh you, you know which are ubiquitous uh these days especially among young people nothing cures that more than stories of people out there doing shit and solving shit and figuring shit out like that i get such positive feedback on those stories. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's just like, you know, maybe it's just like these two ladies trying to figure out a geothermal heating system to replace the natural gas system in their Northeast town. Like, you know, that's not going to solve climate change, but it's just a great story. Like people who got active, found a problem, thought it through, put their backs into it and now have a solution and it's going to work. Just like hearing about that shit is what gets people excited. So that's my almost exclusive focus these days.
1: There is a time to surf and there is a time to wax your board. (laughs) And I'm not just talking
0: about surfing. But, but... (laughs) David oh, come on David you said things in there like that there are victories happening that there are good things happening how dare you there are there are species you, going extinct there are people dying how dare you be happy about
2: anything uh, I know I know it's it, it, this is I I say all this like you know your listeners should know maybe they are not familiar with my work or whatever like I say all this as as a lifelong and especially decades long uh you know catastrophist <laughs> pessimist glo- gloomy I'm gloomy by nature so like to me the larger gloomy story is just kind of baked in at this point like I don't talk about it a lot it's just like that's to me it's just and this to me is where I think climate change ought to be. I don't think it was ever going to work well as a foreground issue. It should always be a background motivator. Like, sure, it's why I do what I do. Like like the, the threat to especially poor and vulnerable people, the threat to other species. Yes, that's in the back of my head as a motivator for why I do what I do, but it's not in the foreground. To me, the foreground is doing something about it and if and and it's a it's a thing about progressives that i think maybe they don't all realize that they have somewhat unique psychology that they are on let's say the far end of a personality spectrum and the idea that they have in their heads that only overriding doom <laughs> and threat can motivate people and you wouldn't believe how often i'm told like when I was out trying to say, hey, the Inflation Reduction Act is actually good, people, you wouldn't believe how often I heard from people saying some version of, look, if you tell people something good happened, that there was a victory, well, then they'll just think, oh, we've got this thing licked and they'll stop fighting, you know, yeah. as though only constant stomach churning angst can keep people involved. And I just want to tell progressives, like, Normal people aren't like that, right? Like if you give normal people stomach churning angst, they'll they they'll just turn the TV off. Like they don't have to, they don't feel like you, like they're morally obliged to wallow in it. Mm-hmm. They'll just tune you out. If you want to get other people involved, we need victories. We need a sense of momentum. We need a sense that like you know, this is the fight of our times, and it's and there's and, and and victory is possible. Like you just can't. The idea that people are solely motivated by dread is is a weird preoccupation of progressives that I think is just wrong. As a matter of like sociology and psychology.
0: If stuff is sort of happening well, the good things are happening, clever people are doing brilliant things, uh, and telling that story is clearly, you know, we need more of that, and it's and it's all good, then are you sort of ambivalent about the role of protest movements? Like, uh, you know, uh, should they instead just be kind of looking to tell the story of, as you say, the people finding ingenious solutions to how to heat their homes or heat their communities or whatever, rather than drawing attention to either, you know, the broader climate crisis or specific injustices. Is 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 protest and our social movements at best benign, at worst, a you know, a drag on progress? This or, was the wrong question.
2: question this was the wrong question if you're running out of time. I was going to say, <laughs> like... Uh, I'll say a couple of things. First, um, this is another th- thing that I feel like some activists get wrong. Not everybody has to be doing the same thing. <laughs> Not everybody has to be taking the same approach, right? You need a portfolio of approaches. You need an ecosystem working at this. And so the the technologists beavering away in their labs, the the entrepreneurs, you know, trying to push these products into market and scale them up. The sort of storytellers and artists, and then the 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 agitators and protesters. All of these are useful roles, and they all have their place in the fight. And it's nothing is dumber than when people from one of the, or the other of those factions yells at people from the other factions that they should be more like their faction right like it's it's fine for people to have different approaches to this it's 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 good like the more the better so yes there's a huge role for for storytelling about victories and for and for tech optimism and all, and all that stuff that activists disdain and look down on yes there's a role for all that stuff but of course there's also a role for for agitation and protest and the sort of like Andrea's mom like that's that is also a piece of the puzzle. So on a on a general level, of course, I think um, activism and protest are a big piece of the puzzle. Secondarily, like, what kind of activism and agitation works is a much more complicated question about which I am vigorously ambivalent. I mean, one of the things I would say I was just talking to, I like the idea a guy of vigorous
0: ambivalence, by the way.
2: That's, I'm going to
0: adopt that position in a lot of different contexts. I know,
2: big, big t-shirts. Uh, I, I was just talking to a guy who's been in progressive PR for 50 years. Uh, you know, so he got his start, like, working with Abby Hoffman and, like, going to the Chicago 7 trial and doing, like, the vintage wow. 60s and 70s, leftist activism and stuff. And as he was telling me stories, I was just like, yes, like, They they knew what they they were trying shit to get attention, new shit, crazy shit, shit that they knew would be weird and controversial, you know, like trying to levitate the Pentagon and all all this like joining hands around the Pentagon and trying to levitate it, like all this kind of nutty shit, a lot of which turned out to be sort of counterproductive, but a lot of which was hugely um, uh, generative and i just feel like since then protest on the left at least in the us has been kind of like professionalized somewhat like we have these big rich ngos who are who have all the all the institutional incentives of large institutions <laughs> the number one of which is to perpetuate the existence of the institution, right? Which which leads to a certain uh, conservatism in your in your approach, because you don't want to like do something big and controversial that blows up in your face, right? So so even like protests on the left, like you get a bunch of people together, you get your permit, you march down the street with your placards. There's some twinky folk music concert followed by a bunch of sort of mid-level speeches that nobody cares about you know the whole protest game the whole protest thing has been sort of like routinized and professionalized and and made bland no one gives a shit like no like in the u.s like the media is like oh there's a Big left protests—they just don't care. Like, but but look at how they covered the Tea Party protests with like twelve people at them, got shitloads of attention just because it's like a man bites dog kind of thing. It's like unusual. It's like a different group of people who uh, have funny costumes.
0: Well, it's authentic, right? Yeah, I mean,
2: feels you can tell, right? Right. It feels like it's not like a, a professional protest group, you know, doing what they do, putting on a professional protest. So I would say. Yes, I think protests and agitation are a huge piece of the puzzle, but I really think modern, contemporary activists need to have a, a, a real hard think about what works to capture attention in the current media and political environment, and that I don't feel like we have great answers for, like what what can cause the 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 attention, <laughs> the the sort of media uh, a machine to take pause and be like, whoa.
1: Worth more than justice. Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection
2: of our planet and people? The cost of living crisis... Well, okay, to to give
0: you an example in in the UK and in Europe, then throwing soup on... Uh, very I was just famous works it of art, right? Because like, I think a lot of people, <laughs> have, in, instinctive reaction to that has been a bit sniffy and a bit like, yes. well, what's the theory of change here? Like, it's nothing totally. to do. But, I mean, I can't think of many acts of protest in the last 10 years that have had as much exactly as like, that.
2: Exactly. Like, right? I sort of, I kind of, you know, like, I'm inclined to think that's goofy too. I'm inclined, I'm, in, I'm inclined to all the same questions. Like, what is, what the hell are you doing? Like, what's the idea? Like, what are you trying to convey? But, but they got attention, right? Like people are paying attention and they don't pay attention when you do polite things. So, so I would say maybe throwing soup on artwork would not be my choice of a thing to do, but it, it's the right idea. Do something different, right? Do something different that gets attention. Recapture some of that sort of Abby Hoffman, uh, you know, throw a wrench in the works spirit it won't all work but like you got to do something that makes people think you, you, you know i'm a big i'm a big fan or I, i'm i'm constantly talking about what's called social proof you know you talk to sociologists this is a concept in sociology called social proof which is like even if we believe things we really don't act on them unless we get signals from people we know and see and trust that it's okay to do so right like we need to dim it. It's not just enough to to persuade people to be concerned about climate change in in their offices, (laughs) you know, and whatever, like we need signals of it that it's okay. We need social signals saying yes. Other people are also concerned about this. It's okay to come out and be public about being concerned about it is a thing we do. And this was a, you know, there's been some fascinating analyses of the civil rights movement in the U S and what a big role this played. And and one of the things they found through polling is like in the late fifties and early sixties, majorities of the public were ready for desegregation, but they all thought that other people weren't, uh, right?
1: Pluralistic right? ignorance. That's what Exactly, that is. Yes.
2: exactly. Thank you. That's the exact term. And, and, and the, the cure for pluralistic ignorance is social proof. Somebody standing up and doing something that gets attention, signaling, yes, I too am concerned about this. A bunch of people are. It's okay to be out and proud about being concerned about this. And this is what we need on climate change. And just a polite march doesn't do that. You need like like if it's an existential problem, right? We're constantly saying this. If it's an existential problem, you know, if you're just like a a normie watching TV, it it you could be forgiven for thinking, well, look, if it's an existential problem, why are you like you know, giving grumpy quotes to the media and then going back to your yeah. day job? You know like why are you living like things are normal if if we're in an existential problem. So somebody has got to like break that pattern and do something that is, that is different and counterintuitive and that attracts attention. And, and that says to other people, it's okay to be freaked out about this. We're all freaked out about this. It's okay to, to, to look around at the sort of normality of this moment and, and 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 be freaked out about it because we're not you know we're not doing what we need to do we're not as engaged we're not on wartime footing whatever and we should be so so that's a super long answer which is just to say agitation and protest absolutely yes but let's think about what works, uh, or, or just like what, what works to get attention? What what's different? You know, just to think again about that sort of rebellious spirit of the '60s, rather than the sort of like professionalized protest. I feel like of 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 the current day.
1: There you go. Well, so we were right a few episodes ago, and we said what we need to do is open up the uh, petrol caps of cars and shit in there. That's what we. That's the babble's. That's the <laughs> babble's plan. So every, that wasn't an official Babel position, but it now is. You are an amazing writer. I hope you don't mind me saying. Love your stuff. um, An article of yours that you wrote 10 years ago about some economics was, I just sent that to everyone. I used to work in economics. It was good. What is your, like, people out there that listen to the Babel and indeed maybe host the Babel may occasionally (laughs) write stuff. And sometimes it can be difficult. Have you got, like, writing tips for something like climate change or just in general? What's your kind of advice for people?
2: Yeah. I want, wrote an article about exactly that if people want to to search my name and it's on vox it's about um basically it's about explanatory journalism which i guess is the term now for what i do i sort of hate that term but it's uh but 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 yes uh, i mean the the thing is what i found when i entered this field is that at least like back in you know the early 2000s when i started writing about climate change was almost uniformly boring and and that's changed a little bit but like not as much as i would like it's it's almost always boring and i feel like when people write about serious topics they try to sort of like put on their serious voice you know like put on there, I'm a professional hat and like, I'm a serious person hat and I'm using facts and a you know, just like this, uh, and that's a ego thing, right? That's worrying about how you appear. People want to appear professional and serious, even at the expense of producing boring material <laughs> that no one reads. And I think so, You know, this is true on a lot of issues and topics and true in a general way, but especially true of climate change um, and especially when I started. So I think the reason I sort of caught on in the first place and got a a, a fan base to the extent I did um, during those early years is I just talked about it like a normal human, (laughs) like a human being who was discovering and thinking this stuff through in real time in in view, right, not hide it, not trying to pretend like I'm an authority, I never still don't try to pretend like I'm an authority I'm just like you, I just happen to have a lucky job, which gives me the time to do a lot of reading around about it like i there's nothing special about me. I just had the time to read and and study this stuff and 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 so I want to help you understand it because you know you listener have a are a normal person that have a day job and 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 a life and family and responsibilities and don't have time to immerse yourself in this i do have time so it's a privilege for me to be able to do that and then to come to you and say here it is sort of boiled down like here's what you need to know about what's going on and 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 the shape of things just like as though i were talking to a kind of clever friend at a bar. That's the analogy. That's the sort of metaphor I used in my post is imagine you were explaining this stuff to a person, to a friend of yours in a bar. Now go read a journalistic piece about climate change and think, would you talk to a friend in a bar like that in this stuffy, official voice. No, Al- uh, you know, you know, you would for the, for uh, I mean, the, the number one thing you would be thinking about in a bar with a friend is how do I not bore this friend? How do I like, how do I explain this in such a way that the friend gives a shit? Right. Are, are like, you listening
0: to this old? Are you listening? Uh, so I have to choose my friends very carefully,
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know? So what is the nugget of interest or, or significance in this story That people really do need to know, pull it out and say it, you know, like, what does it mean? What's the like, what's the takeaway? Like, don't be afraid to sort of like, um, draw your conclusions and take your stances. You know, this whole idea of like neutrality or objectivity is so silly. I have taken the opposite tact of subjectivity. Like I am a person learning about this and reading about this. I will make mistakes. You know, I've changed my mind about stuff, but basically like I'm your avatar digging into this stuff and coming back to you and telling you what you need to know to be an educated citizen. And my first first Primary goal in that is not to bore your f- pants off. So so I use humor, you know, I use profanity. I I use pictures of cute animals. It's such a heavy topic. Don't be afraid to just use humor and 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 don't be afraid to sort of like take a take a position, you know, take a stance, like make some arguments. Like a lot of people, you know, I'll make an argument. A lot of people will write me and will be infuriated and argue back, but they're paying attention and they're thinking about it, engaging and caring. Like arguments are not like, you know, this whole idea of objectivity is like, if you make an argument, you're, you're doing the reader's thinking for them. I'm just like, no, like I came out of philosophy, like making an argument, taking a stand is how you, prompt thinking in other people. (laughs) Hearing an argument is what gets people thinking, right? Right. They're like, do I agree with this? Do I want to argue back? What are the flaws in this argument? So, you know, I just want to be, I've just always tried to be informal and engaging. And that has proven to be very rare in this particular field, which is why I think uh, people have gravitated toward it.
1: David, thank you so much for coming on Sustainable, being informal, engaging, magnificently sweary, vigorously <laughs> ambivalent, and an all-round an superhero. Give the necessary plugs to your stuff. Where can people follow you and read what you're up yes, to? Yes,
2: you can. Uh, I run uh, um, a newsletter. It is at, it's called Volts. It is at the URL Volts.wtf. I uh, like that. And, uh, you, you know, I haven't been writing as much lately because I've got uh, uh, issues with my arms uh, and, and my tendons and whatnot. So I've been more podcasting than writing lately, but hopefully I'll restore more of a balance coming. But for now, I've been just been podcasting with all the fascinating people I was referring to earlier. And it's been it's been it's caught on quite well and it's doing quite well. So, yeah, come sign up for Volts. Come subscribe and uh and get all all this all this delight you you've heard in the last hour you can have it every week
0: right that is just about it for another episode of babble a mind expanding lovely warm cuddly illuminating episode of Babel. I enjoyed that a lot. I think from the expression on your face, sometimes, Dave, sometimes when we interview people, I can tell Mm. that Mm. you're thinking, hmm, not going to use this, or hmm, (laughs) need to move them on to something else. And I was watching your face, Mm. which is a thing I like doing. And I was watching your face, and your face was one of kind of zen-like contentment. You were drinking in what David was saying, and you had absolutely no
1: intention to interrupt. No, I love all that shit. Well, I mean, you know, you know me. You know about my other podcast, Your Brain on Climate, and you know I don't. Way. I've
0: genuinely never listened to it.
1: Bastard. Well, you know, I listen I to anyway. the pilot
0: when you ask me to check if it's all right, but I haven't listened Absolute to any others. Absolute Judith. Anyway,
1: <laughs> I love all that. I stuff. haven't I listened know-
0: to my own podcast, Dave. Eh? No, that's true. Why would true. I, I, I listen to stuff.
1: yours? <laughs> I love people. I, I, you know, I'm just, I just like people who just kind of make me feel like it's all right not to have all the answers to everything, basically. That's why yeah. I've stuck with you for eight years, because <laughs> you make me feel very, very intellectually confident, I must say. Um, <laughs> if I, you, like I think what that's what one you... of
0: my greatest roles in life, <laughs> making other
1: people <laughs> feel better about their intellectual <laughs> capabilities. <laughs> if you like what you heard you can pop onto your podcast medium of choice itunes obviously i think other other podcast mediums are available what allow you to give a rating please give us a five star rating if you think it's worth it and write a review with your hands algorithms like it when you do that you can drop us an email at hello at sustainababble.fish we're on the facebook at sustainababble and the twitter at the babble wagon
0: very good uh thank you as ever to Dickie Moore for the music that begins, ends and intertwinkles this podcast and to Arthur Stovall for the artwork which is on all of our stuff including t-shirts that you can get from our good from our website which is wubblywubblywubbly.sustainabble.fish
1: Right that's it all uh, what will you be doing with the rest of your evening old son?
0: I will be just being zen about the fact that Good stuff is happening and that we don't need to worry, man, about you know
1: stuff. I'm off round your house to open up the petrol cap of your Volvo and take a shit in it.
0: My Volvo but- alone, it's a very sensible family car. Bye! Bye! Do you think this episode warrants one of your little jokes?
1: I mean, yes, I think it does. I think it wasn't long enough already. And now you're <laughs> going to shut up and listen to this. Right. Hey, Ol. Oh, hey, oh. You there? I'm You, you would not want to yes. miss this. You'll miss no, it no. when it's gone. Come on. No, no. Come on, Brian. I'm here. Hey, oh. A priest, an imam, and a rabbit walk in <laughs> to a blood donation centre.
0: I don't like... Where this is going already. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like this if we're going to get cancelled, this shouldn't be the point where we get cancelled.
1: A priest, an imam and a rabbit walk in to a blood donation centre and they all have their blood test. And afterwards... Have
0: you sense checked this joke with anyone? Have you run it past Mrs. Dave?
1: And afterwards, the priest and the imam say to the rabbit, what blood type are you? And the rabbit says, I think I'm a typo. (laughs) That is quite a good joke. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It works better in print, that joke. But thank you.